Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the VSuit podcast, the audio-only virtualization podcast that has more clout than a sledgehammer covered in bacon waved by a unicorn riding a cloud. We've got a bit of a break from the usual tech-focused show today. Uh, partially as my brain is still hurting from the show with Nick Weaver. We're joined by two-thirds of a trio of community leaders who claim to have tamed the beast that is the hive mind of an IT pro. From the recently launched Geek, Geek Whisperers podcast, uh, Amy Lewis and Matthew Brander. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I'd love to also be saying hi to John Troyer, but unfortunately uh, he's uh, on his recent return from holiday. He's uh, very busy um, and can't be with us tonight, which is yeah, uh, he's unfortunate. I think he's the actually beast. yeah, or hulaing with a unicorn <laughs> that's waving bacon to the cloud. Yes, he sounded like he was having a nice time in Hawaii, which is uh, quite quite envious. So, um, for those who haven't heard the uh, Geek Whisper- Whisperer show, um, can you give us a, sort of the, the elevator pitch on it? Matt, you want this one? Oh, I trust you, Amy. <laughs> We're collaborative in nature. Um, we are... <laughs> we are... Uh, the podcast sort of developed around conversations that John and I had in Barcelona, and then Matt and I had... I should say in Barcelona, not just because we hang out in Barcelona all the time, but at VMworld in Barcelona. And also a conversation Matt and I had had at VMworld in San Francisco. And we found that we had a lot of things in common. And the more conversations that we had, the more we thought about, why don't we take this somewhere else? So the idea bloomed. John, it's uh, much credit for that. And when we are on the show, the basic premise is social media for social media practitioners focused on enterprise. Our home base is IT, but we try to extend beyond that. And so one of the interesting things for us has been it really had been targeted on our colleagues because we had come together as colleagues who do the same thing in different companies, but we found that we've had a lot of engagement from people who are practitioners who are either setting up their own blog and running it and wanting to look behind the curtain of social media a little bit more and get into the art of it and not just... The, the doing of it, but to think about the mechanics. So it's it's been an interesting, interesting journey. So in terms of target audience, rather than actually being, although you know the the geek bit is uh, is quite strong theme throughout it, um, is the target audience actually people who might be from a more traditional marketing background? Because I often see that marketing people kind of get it, for want of a better word, wrong uh, oh. when it comes <laughs> to social media and sort of some of the community stuff in general. Well, we had really hoped to uh, attract the the traditional marketer with the Geek Whispers, and that was certainly our target audience out of the gates. And we're we're adapting with our listeners. So, as Amy was saying, a lot of our technical friends across the the IT enterprise world we we live and enjoy being a part of are all interested in in just being better at using the platforms that we we've all used and found to be valuable. Twitter in particular, blogging has um, benefited us all, and really being engaged with the community in real life and online. So we like to dig into spanning the gap between those two, some best practices, but also just some some theories like what happens when your personal brand could possibly overshadow your professional brand or your the business that you work for. Like how do you get out of sticky situations of collaboration? Just some real, um, some real hard-hitting conversations that no one else was addressing, 
And it's as valuable, we found, to our peers that are technologists at heart, as well as, you know, those marketers that are looking to be more and more shifting towards social. I think that's a great way of, yeah, it's like a hearts and minds kind of thing at a certain level. And so it makes sense in the end that it appeals to anybody who is looking to, like I said, become a little more strategic, maybe, and and not perform random acts of Twitter. Um, Maybe that should be our new tagline. Random acts of Twitter. Well, I've certainly seen uh, more than one uh, technology company's Twitter account do that, and it's like they just, <laughs> I don't know, they must have just had sort of a random word generator that says, that links to a CRN post or something, which has absolutely nothing to do with what they're trying to explain. Um, I'm sure yeah. there's plenty of hashtags to support the strategy, though. <laughs> Hashtag, you're right, Matt. Hashtag. <laughs> also, my, my idea is, you said when your personal brand um, overdoes Can- your uh, your professional brand. Absolutely, yep. At that point, I would think it's time to take another job, right? Well, <laughs> that that's the kind of thing that is worth listening into. We've gone up into this uh, in detail to really determine if John Mark Troyer is at all hireable again in any other group but other than VMware. <laughs> and the I'm not going to tease you any more than you should probably listen into the podcast and find out. <laughs> but, I mean, it's all practical to us that we've all got this weird little celebrity opportunity with this flat, this flat social hierarchy, um, which is intentionally ironic, and in using Twitter and being people that go to a lot of tech conferences enjoy the hell out of each other in person, and then work our butts off online to continue to progress and make us all better at what we're trying to learn and do. We all love it. We all love being part of it. Um, it but it's like Amy was alluding to, it's we, we like to use the limited amount of time we have to get better at it, so we narrow in and learn from each other. And honestly, I feel like I'm just having weekly reviews slash psychology sessions with, um, with Amy and and John to just talk out some things that come up and and see what the consensus is so that we can all get a little bit better at what we do. So it's, speaking of, of uh, what you do, I mean your your day job, the three of you are community leaders um, for the respective components of VMware, Cisco, and uh, EMC. Um, from a, a community point we're, of view, we're basically a V block. <laughs> you're, 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 a V-block made, made in human form. Um, <laughs> Twice as efficient. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, in, in terms of you know, the community management side of things, where you know, obviously this, this sprung up from, do you see a very different way of managing a community that's uh, offline to one that's online? Or should the two merge? I love this question. Can I take this one? Oh, absolutely. Go for it. Um. I think one of the challenges people have, and I actually think that um, John and Matt um, or you know VMware and EMC are great examples of companies that are doing it right, which for me, I will argue passionately that community is social 2.0, which you may say we've not even gotten through social 1.0, but I think that people figured out early on that social media was really a way to connect with each other. And of of course, we're going to have other marketeers, PR folks. I shouldn't name names and blame whole organizations. There are brilliant and wonderful people within each of those groups. But certain organizations within a large corporate structure are tasked with certain ROI. And the instinct and drive to use social channels to kind of use as traditional outbound marketing, demand generation, kind of spray and pray approach 
is pretty strong. And I think that people who do community push back against that a little bit and think very much about the people that compose the the social media that is happening. And, and that's kind of the vector we optimize for. So I think both of those companies have done a wonderful job in using the tools of social to develop community and enabling community online, but really, really being cognizant of bringing that kind of community into real life as well. So opportunities for meetups, large and small, sometimes at tech events, sometimes, you know, wherever technologists gather, et cetera. And, you know, at Cisco, we're, we're working our way towards some uh, community-based programs as well. And, you know, things like vBacon or other, other sort of tweet-ups that we've done around events, we're, we're on the same path. And I think a lot of that is having someone who champions um, the idea that people are important and that people buy from people, and it's not about companies, which gets us right back to that, you know, company versus uh, individual argument. And I, I think that that concept of community in real life and online kind of mirrors that. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I was recently at a, what I regard as a sort of a similar example of that at the uh, Spice World conference. Um, now, yes, there is Spice Works, Works the product, but as an online community, um, it is just, it's an IC Pro community with no specific agenda. Um, have, you know, they have their, their annual conference. It seems to be a pretty cheap one to attend. Uh, the main main focus seems to be towards the, the SMB side of the market. But again, it was about getting people who possibly don't norm, might be the one-man band IT guy in their, um, in their company to meet up with, with like-minded people. And Yes, you're always going to get a few extroverts in the pack, uh, but most of it was focused on getting people who don't normally talk to each other to talk. Yeah, I isn't that, that great that our yeah. entire industry is trying to drive people to engage with each other? And I think you we overemphasize in the community space looking for those extroverts, and we've addressed this a little bit in the Geek Whispers as well. Amy and I are certainly th the type of people that we're, we're loud and love to meet people and get everyone together. But I know I can speak for myself saying that my favorite thing is when you're in a situation that you're curating and you have a group of people in real life at an event that are talking to each other and they know that they're the focus of it and they're meeting people they wouldn't normally meet. And you're just in the background just making sure the flow works. Um, I love Amy's term for this, where you're you're just DJing. You're either DJing a, a Twitter account or you're DJing an event, and you're just that person that's keeping the flow going and keeping people engaging. And what's so interesting about that is how much value it adds to the individuals communicating, but also to the broader brand of whatever company we represent. Uh, because as we were saying individuals make up this big brand and individuals communicating about a brand on public domain and in Twitter and blogs really adds up to a measurable amplification of a message that we all want to convey. So it's extremely powerful and I'm thankful that the tools and the process involved with that are justifying the, the commitment and engagement and investment that we all make with our time to, to be there out on social and participating. Do you also find that you might get uh, IT guys that weren't otherwise extroverts to, to talk more than usual? Oh, absolutely. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah, I, go I, for it, Amy. No, and I love that we're talking about this in terms of extroversion and introversion because I think um, I actually wrote 
uh, a blog about this, don't call me maybe, um, with the idea that I think so many of the people in this field tend to be much better sort of introspective and in writing. And so things like Twitter or other community platforms might be a great way for them to break the ice so that when they do, you know, hopefully get, get cleared to go to an event. And like you said, lots of these kind of one person shops. So they, they work very hard and they're very talented in isolation, but not only do they get the education of going to the conference itself, but they get that peer to learning, which I think is so important. And I love that these tools enable people who might not be the one wearing the lampshade on their head at a party to connect with each other. And then, you know, people like Matt was saying, people like Matt and John and I kind of take it on ourselves. Uh, you know, it's, it's really our mission whenever we do have an in-person event to see how we can break the ice and make sure it's comfortable for these people to have real, real conversations in person as well and kind of get out of the way. It's, um, it's a pretty amazing phenomenon and one that's really, I think, risen with the advent of social media. So for all the people who think of it as, you know, as what you do, you take pictures of breakfast, you waste your time. I feel that the people who <laughs> engage in social media are, are often I, what I call the plus one group. They're the, they're the smart kids. They're the ones who want the extra credit assignment. They're the ones who do their job. And not only do they want to do it, they want to learn more about it. And they want to connect with, you know, that one other person doing the same thing they do in like lower Siberia. And, and social media has enabled us to, to connect them. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I certainly agree with you on the it giving you a, a helping start to break the ice at in-person events. Uh, you know, contrary to popular belief of those that have seen me in a green sequin shirt at a Veeam party, um, <laughs> I have been you know, one of the quieter ones. And pro- I remember going to my first uh, Vmug, and I don't think I spoke to anyone. I might have spoken to a couple of people, but no one didn't really to know anyone. Um, there was a bit of a gap between that and the subsequent Vmug. Um, at which point I'd sort of discovered Twitter and started talking to a few more people. Um, and it, it just snowballed from there. Uh, oh, and that transformation is incredible. I mean, I went, I got very lucky and I got to go to EMC World my very first year at EMC. And I was just overwhelmed with excitement, just being a nerd at a tech conference that's just overwhelming you with great information. Um, but I, I definitely felt almost lonely in the crowds there because there's no one I really knew. I had no platform to get, connect with them um, until later on when I got Browby into joining Twitter. And once I did, the next time I went to EMC World, it was just incredibly different. I, I just felt like I was going to um, the best kind of high school reunion you could possibly go to where all my friends are there and we're all sharing information and, and strategizing how to spend the most of most of our time in the best way. And I, every time I go to a conference, I'm excited because I know I'm going to see people like Amy and I'm looking forward to meeting you in person and meeting Christian as well. And Ed and uh, those kind of moments where you're like, Oh, this virtual platform, despite it seeming insincere and maybe even weird and creepy to be talking to strangers online. I mean, we all have that in the back of our head. Um, it's actually really impressively personable and just people talking to people about common interests, which is a great way to start any conversation. Here's a, here's a funny thing. I I did the exact same thing as Twitter does, uh, 20 or so years ago with BBS systems. You, you called them up, left a bunch of messages, sent messages to, to other people you didn't know, but, it was locally, geographically local people, so we ended up meeting people that way. 
people I would um, not have met. Yeah, but, I had a BBS as well in, in yeah. Chicago. <laughs> Does, it's, it's kind of the same dynamics in a way, but Twitter kind of joins everyone in that, and, and, and everyone can jump in and out of it. But if you think about it, I, I, I went to VMworld in 2010, and I met up with this crazy American guy who lives in Switzerland. <laughs> uh, and this Chris guy who I've heard a bit about but haven't talked that much with. And all of a sudden, uh, we have recorded 30-odd-something podcasts since then. Awesome. That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it is a great story. It's, uh, it's insane. And this, <laughs> this weird American guy who lives in Switzerland, he's... he's <laughs> <laughs> he tried to get us to talk to each other at a conference where I didn't really know anyone in person. I, I, I traveled alone. Uh, my wife with me, was with me, but she wasn't at the conference. I didn't know a single person in the room or in the conference hall at the Bella Center in Copenhagen. No one. I, I hadn't met anyone there before. And I and I still think of that. That's the only VM world I've been to, unfortunately. Unfortunately, but I I left from there and thinking I, I have a lot of friends here that I've never actually met before, until now. I, ha yep. I, ha I I had Mike Laverick running after my taxi. <laughs> and it's, seriously, these these are people I've, I've read, I've, I've looked up to in a way. I, I've read all their content. I've, I've conversation had conversations with them. Uh, on Twitter and whatever, but I had never actually met them. Yeah, and there's something about the the acceptability of reaching out into a broader conversation with people on Twitter that I think really fosters that that community. That it, it's that opt-in relationship by design, and that very candid, tongue-in-cheek humor we all have out there, uh, while also staying professional most of the time. Um, it just really works for us, and uh, it gives it gives you the opportunity to jump in, have a casual conversation, and then connect on the technical fascinations that we all have. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm a big proponent for the platform, without a doubt. <laughs> but it, it, it's the same kind of dynamics happening in other professional fields. I mean, by, <laughs> definition, by definition, a lot of us techies are introverts or whatever, and used to being put in data centers with no windows and don't talk to anyone. <laughs> And all of a sudden, we have this platform where we can talk to everyone at the same time. And uh, a, a really big portion of us actually does that, which is weird in itself, but it happens, you know. But do you guys know if any... We're all techies here, but does the same thing kind of happen with lawyers or doctors or whatever? I'm not sure it does. I mean, my, my, my wife is an accountant, and I tried oh, well, to... Sorry. Yeah, no, she, she gets stuck on something, and I always I wonder whether you know why don't you just ask on Twitter? She's like, oh, accountants don't go on Twitter. Um, and overflow. Wait a minute. It does depend on the field. We had we had a guest on recently who um, specializes. He's part of uh, the Tech Ops group at Cisco, so he is a digital first responder, which is already an incredibly cool job. But they have a niche community online of people who are emergency responders. And by virtue of um, following him, I got to follow the ha hashtag. I saw it's hashtag SMEM, and I won't call all the words correctly for what that stands for, but it is, it is such an interesting sub-community, and it is such a niche thing that 
it draws people to it. So I have seen it in, in other worlds. And, and again, the vector there is not just his digital, um, but it, the first responder concept. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it does depend on the community, but I do feel, I feel like we have something very special but because yeah, Cisco like Tag, you said, though, he's still related to technology somehow, right? Yeah. Well, I can well, go he a is, step further. He is, but he's where... part of a, he's part of a bigger community that isn't just technical. So these are emergency responders in the traditional sense as well, not just digital first responders. Okay. So it, it's, it's about operations at that point. There are people who think operationally. Um, so again, like I said, it depends on the community. I, I will argue, I think we have something special here because we have a community that has the ability to meet online. And like you said, has been a very, it's a bit of a digital diaspora, right? We we're a, particularly in data center, we're quite, quite spread out, but we have the ability to gather on occasion, you know, sometimes locally and sometimes more, even more so at the larger tier one conferences. But we have that ongoing drip going on on Twitter and on Facebook and on, on user groups. It's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, and actually I wanted to bring up a couple other examples of people that use social really well, particularly Twitter. Uh, one of them is a, a set of lawyers that are talking about privacy laws. And they just found such a strong community around that uh, that they started this group called Privacy Camp. And if you use the hashtag um, PrivChat, they talk every week and talk about privacy laws and engagement and how it overlaps with social. Um, and then, honestly, a, another totally unrelated one. Uh, my girlfriend and I picked up a Siamese cat from this woman who uses social to uh, share pictures of her cats as they're growing up. And like when you buy one... Like she tags it immediately, and she'll tweet and and Facebook pictures and tag you in them, saying like, "Oh, this is yours. This is your cat was just born." And so she's the original source of cats on the internet, then. <laughs> no, she hasn't really developed <laughs> yes. the lol cat thing, but she's definitely responsible for me putting a unicorn on my cat the other day. <laughs> but uh, just the idea of like, her marketing strategy is genius when you boil it down. I mean, she doesn't do any outreach. She doesn't do anything um, on any pay-for platform. She just shows her cats and, and gets more attention from it because she's using social platforms. So there are a lot of people leveraging social in a really interesting way um, that are outside of the, the social sphere uh, or the technical sphere, excuse me. Uh, but I think they're all going to have something in common where we're, we're all a big Venn diagram where there are circles overlapping and overlapping where it, when you look at that core, the Internet technologies is what's connecting the world today. And people are getting more and more comfortable jumping out there and being a little bit more transparent and a little bit more bold with how much they're sharing because they're seeing the return on that investment is just so high it's worth it. Also, the, the irony of a uh, a chat called priv, uh, you know for the the privacy law guys uh, on a public yeah. medium like Twitter is not lost on me. Oh, it's, uh, it's very <laughs> tongue in cheek right there. <laughs> so basically, um, let me just ask you guys what you think about this. A lot of this black hat community got started with social media, like like uh, let me say it like IRC channels, really, wasn't it? Hacktivist groups like Anonymous and so. Well, well, I, I, I would, I would take it even it. one step further and talk about things like the Arab Spring, and I mean, you know, we, yeah, we've got Black Hat, and we've got you know, countries being toppled by Twitter, which is an unbelievable thing to think about. Um, the power of a medium, and again, as technologists, to appreciate the simplicity of the tool. Like you said, there've been 
um, BBS, you know, for a long time, but this, this lowered the barrier to entry. This made this just like, you know, the transformation from what ARPANET to, to Netscape was pretty transformational. This is the same thing. The user, it's a user interface issue at a certain point has made the barrier to entry low enough for everybody to participate. And I think as such, you're going to get, you're going to get all kinds of, you kind of, when an open marketplace, you get all kinds of uh, participants. So I'm not sure there would be a way to legislate around that, nor do I necessarily think that would be a good idea. I'm curious what you guys think. Yeah, I'd love to, even before we get into the legislation, I think the, the flattening of the social hierarchy is giving a lot of opportunities for people to bubble up and see that, that we have more in common than we think. I mean, after not, at no time is that more apparent than after a tragedy. And there are tweets going back and forth between between Boston and Syria, between New York City and Iran. And people, they're not actually yelling at each other and saying terrible things. They're sharing in each other's pain and situation. And just when you start seeing that in near real time and with pictures and, and short snippets of conversation, it really connects you into a very philosophical basis of like what is what do we all have in common what are we all aspiring towards and it builds a, a community across culture geography time zone religion beliefs all of it um, and I think we see that in uh, in ways where people try to step up and be their be their own version of what they want to see in the world through anonymous or through Arab Spring or through just being out there. It's, it's the whole, whole non-censorship thing in, in a way as well, you know, because it changes mainstream media as well. Because everything isn't filtered as we might have been used to it being five or ten years ago. Yeah, John has this great metaphor that, uh, well, if you think about it just as a big IT enterprise company, it used to just be there's that one mouthpiece that was like the PR controlled everything and it was coming out through PR, everything else was filtered. But now we're like this big, porous uh, am amoeba where we have just that you can come, uh, information is coming in and out of it all the time and in all directions, and you can't control that anymore. And you see that in mainstream media where there's like Twitter feeds on CNN and, <laughs> um, and on the New York Times website because the two mediums affect each other. Yeah, but it, 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 there's also problems related to that. You know, as, as the case in the uh, in the uh, recent events in Boston, where uh, a missing individual all of a sudden got identified as one of the potential bombers, uh, and that was broadcast on Twitter as soon as someone made a connection there. It turned out that that wasn't true. He was actually missing, uh, and uh, they found him a bit later. But that was kind of uh, I, saw, I saw a lot of discussion on Twitter right then about why doesn't CNN or why doesn't uh, Fox or whatever report that this is probably this guy. And people don't seem to understand that traditional media does have to do a lot of background checks and they have to be certain that, or at least as certain as they can be about the information they're providing is, if not accurate, at least... Uh, uh, at least verified in some way, and someone just posting something on on Twitter as a personal on a personal account doesn't have the same kind of ethical uh, or 
or corporate vetting process before they spread information. True, but you're equally as accountable. Um, you know, there's been cases, the case in the UK recently, um, where there, when we had the riots, there were people who got uh, imprisoned for quite some time for allegedly inciting rioting uh, on due to Facebook comments and Twitter comments uh, that weren't you know, necessarily made in jest, as some of the more famous sort of Twitter trials have been. Uh, that you know, people still you have to be aware of what you say. Um, and, you know, if that then does implicate someone um, for something they didn't do and mob rule decides to inflict mob justice, then you've got to partially feel responsible for that. No, and I, I think that's the exact analogy. It's a lynch mob at scale. And I think that in the same way that you always have to take personal responsibility for that and, you know, the sort of classic don't yell fire in a crowded theater, um, a similar concept. So it's, it's a, a don't, don't hate on the platform kind of idea. Yeah, the, the, the problem isn't Twitter. The problem is, as always, people. Yes. Never, um, ever underestimate the power of large groups of very stupid people. <laughs> <laughs> well, at scale. read any YouTube, look at any YouTube video and read down to the comments. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I guarantee that you will be less intelligent once you complete that. Or <laughs> <laughs> you'll be convinced that you are more intelligent. Without, without <laughs> or feel much better about yourself. Exactly. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Yes, it's idiocracy all over again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious. I'm going to ask a question. It's what I like to do. Sure. Um, what what are what do you see as the big social media challenge facing us next? Is it something like this governance model? Is it who owns data? Is it privacy? What do you, what do you see as the the challenge on the horizon? Well, me personally, I don't see a challenge of adoption or governance or whatever. I'm just seeing the fact that people still don't take the Internet 100% seriously. Some people don't, right? They think that when they're there, they're completely autonomous, whatever, even though they're using their own names, their photos, stuff like that. They don't take it seriously as in they're, they don't realize how accountable they are for what they exactly. say and do. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, look around at someone that's not as tuned in with technology or hasn't been on it as long. They think they can write whatever they want to, stuff like that. I don't see it. I'm not seeing a challenge. I'm just, I'm just adding something. From what no, that I've makes sense. Personally. So you, you think that people haven't learned? It sounds like what you're saying is that it is um, a learned skill. Do you think that the digital natives, the kids coming up, are going to be better at this, or are they going to change the rules? Most definitely. I think they're they're going to be better at it. They're going to understand that they're held accountable for everything. Whereas they write something on the internet, they might get in trouble for school in in school, right? Older yeah. people such as myself, I've seen some people writing some crazy stuff on the internet and not linking themselves to it directly, or thinking that they're not linked to it directly when they really are. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah the thing the thing is that you and I both kind of grew up on the BBS team. Yeah. Back, th back then, you were kind of, you were isolated in the, your own walled garden. And the people who, who who connected and got those messages were kind of a, a small group. Yeah. Uh, there are no more walls. <laughs> yeah. That that time is gone. I, I I have two. I have two kids. One that's sixteen and one that's thirteen. Both <laughs> of them. Both of them are on Twitter. Both of them are on Facebook. 
And if I look back at myself when I was 13, 14 and running BBS systems, uh, they are a lot more mature than I was when they post something. Oh, I would not have let my 13-year-old self on the interwebs. I mean, I would never have given 13-year-old me a, a smartphone. I oh, would have both put my... iPhones, no problems. You know, I, and again, I'm just thinking, you know, I did not have any of the... I cannot imagine the amount of trouble I would have gotten into if it was this was a sci-fi movie and I just got dropped into that world with that powerful device and not the the social underpinnings or the cultural norms around it. I think it's a great point when people drop in to the technology but without the I don't know, the practice. It, it's an interesting point that it, it's it's harder than kids who grow up and, you know, peer review if they bully online. I mean, we've seen tragic cases occur, but I'm, there is an a lot of community policing as well that ensures good behavior. Yeah, it's, it, there are more community policing online than there are than there is uh, locally in the schoolyard. Oh, absolutely! It has that um, that abstraction between it. So the same thing that makes it easy for people to bully and easy easy for people to leave the dumbest comments you'll ever read on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> is also thankfully the complement of that is it it's also easier for people to step up and say no I don't accept your behavior it's inappropriate and here's why and yeah. defend each other and be uh, be closer than they ever could feel confident doing in person uh, and that that's the beautiful complement of the negative risk yeah but at the moment the there's still some there's still a strong level of anonymity right Right, yes. perceived anonymity, maybe. Well, perceived, sure, but I mean, you can log into a uh, message board as a guest any day. True, true. And write a bunch of junk you want. Sure. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by the people who uh, is is spam a strategy? Because I I run a couple of blogs, and and I think <laughs> when is the last time? When since 1985 did that possibly work to be? You know, oh, I'm going to trick you into approving my link to you know. It's always something ridiculous. When was that last working? I wonder why it doesn't just stop. Because people, again, are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to come on this podcast often for answers. I'm sorry. Yeah, Christian's right. If you look at the seething mass, the majority are stupid. I'm sorry. Well, he's right. I suppose if by that you know people who who have blog comments non moderated. So and you know if you hit hundred thousand blogs with the same uh, spam for the for the same sort of Louis Vuitton fake uh, website, and if ten of those haven't got uh, comment moderation switched on because they're stupid, um, then you're going to get your link out there at least ten times. Uh, if, with email spam as well. Yeah, I mean, it's just if, a numbers if, game. Yeah, if you if you spam forty million emails and one percent of those receivers actually end up trying to buy something, you've won. It's as easy as that. It's it's economics. I, I and, like and that's actually driving us back into like trusted circles where really we're using all these platforms that extend our network out across geos across the world in real time. But at the same time, I feel us becoming more like little villages than we ever have recently. Like I, I feel like my grandmother would understand my sense of community better than my parents do, uh, because they are used to a small town where you rely on the same butcher, you rely on the same tailor, 
and there's that sense of loyalty and commitment to and trust across them. While like our our generation or the the generation of my parents, I know I'm on the younger side. <laughs> they they are used to more of the well, it's you know it's all basic consumerism. Whatever is the cheapest, whatever works. Um, you know, we're just all part of the the cogs in the system. But I think we're the social is actually bringing us back into that village mentality where we're we're connected to individuals again, and that loyalty um, is what keeps us in a, a trusted network where we stay away from the spam crap and we stay away from the people that are gonna just start flame wars and and yelling at us for no good reason. Yeah, but those guys are fun as well. <laughs> yeah, if you're into that, if you're up for every, it, there's always every an opportunity. village. Every village needs its idiot. Yeah. So, but but. Think about it. How, how many of you guys know your neighbors really well? I know everybody because I live in Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but your neighbors are cows, Ed. <laughs> yeah, cows and a few nice Swiss people. Well, we actually still rely on the whole butcher, tailor type of thing. So that might be why you don't see so many Swiss uh, social media type people. Yeah, no, it's it. I'm. It's a great point. I live in you know that sort of bedroom community, as they would call it, suburbia, and and I don't end up knowing a lot of my neighbors. I have a dog, so you end up knowing some people who have dogs, or if you have kids, you sort of know a few people in the neighborhood from that. But otherwise, you're inside your house, and I end up having, like you said, it, it is it is a bit of a diaspora, and you end up having a village con- composed of people across the globe, which is. It's interesting, and as we talk about what we, it speaks to some of the art of our job and what we do in terms of thinking that way and then putting events together around that concept and even how we create content together and how we, how we follow up with it. Because one of the things that we do, for instance, I take a lot of pictures. And one of the things I've talked about is I end up putting these picture, these photo albums together and putting them on Facebook. And I have a personal connection with a lot of people on Facebook and it becomes like that summer camp album. So you're like, Oh, I totally remember VMworld 2012. And they're so-and-so and they're such and such. And it has been one of those strangely successful kinds of outreach and a community where it seems odd that that would work and be a way to connect us. But it, it really does. Yeah. So your next door neighbor is that guy in Eastern Kazakhstan who, was able to communicate with you in some form at some point. Uh, well, <laughs> when uh, I, I, I used Kazakhstan as an example because I, I did some online HP training last week and I, I was paired up with a guy from Kazakhstan doing lab work from my home <laughs> office. That's awesome. Which is completely insane. You think about it, but it works. Well, and my kids, I have young kids, and so they get this in a way. It's so funny. They don't think it's odd that mommy has a Yeti, and she hops on the internet and does this thing. And and they they are such digital natives, and admittedly, it's very, it permeates our house. But they, they, uh, you know, love Belgian chocolate more than all chocolate in the world. I'm a food blogger, and we happen to get some Belgian chocolate, and now they won't eat American chocolate. (laughs) So... You know, cost and benefits, but they, they're part of this global community already, and, and they think that's the most natural thing in the world. It's, it's going to be interesting to see what ramifications it has on our society as we go forward. Well, next time I run into you guys, I'll have to uh, introduce you to some Swiss chocolate. <laughs> I would say it's a bit better experience. than the Belgian variety. but Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
Don't tell me Belgians, they'll get upset. <laughs> <laughs> Just between, you know, the five of us, or four of us here. Five. <laughs> yeah, so let's wrap up here for today. Thank you guys for joining us for VSoup number 34. That was a pleasure. It's a great experience. Thank you so much. I love hearing your uh, your podcast stories and just some of the stories you've got about how social media has been affecting your professional and personal lives. It's very cool. Yeah, well, uh, thanks a lot for joining us. You can catch us on Stitcher, iTunes, or vsoup.net. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs>